We're looking today in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. It's printed in the worship folder if you'd like to turn in your Bible. I mentioned earlier that it used to be we'd say turn in your Bible. Now we say turn on your Bible, whichever, 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 5. I'll begin reading in verse 12. I won't read the entire passage, but at least through verse 22. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with them all so that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good and to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. I'll stop there. So ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word. Paul's, the Apostle Paul who wrote this, his his favorite way to address other believers was brothers. And that's how he begins this passage. He he uses that term at at least 60 times in in the New Testament. And Paul saw the local church, like First Presbyterian Church, functioning like a family, and it had brothers and sisters and children. Now, how does one enter that family? Well, the Bible tells us very clearly, but to as many as received him, speaking of Christ, to them he gave the right to become children of God. So we are adopted into God's family. Ephesians says that in love he predestined us for adoption, as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. So what are the signs of a healthy family? I mean, we, we know today you can have a family that may not be healthy, but you can have a family that is healthy. And we have indicators here what a healthy church family is. I've been an ordained pastor almost 40 years. And during that time, I, I kind of divided into thirds. I divide it into thirds as to reasons people say why they move from one church to another. This is for church people, not not a new convert that that comes to church for the first time, but someone who was at church A and ends up going to church B. And I would ask in the early years, why did you, what caused you to choose that particular church? And the answer almost universally was, Uh, I wasn't being fed where I was, and I go there now because I'm being fed, referring to spiritual teaching from preaching and teachers and so forth. Almost never hear that today. That was like the first third of my 40 years. The second third, people would say, how did you end up at church A over there? Well, we really like the music, and especially our kids. And so we went there because we liked the music. I never hear that anymore. Now, when I ask someone, what are you looking for in a church? How are you ended up here or at other church? The answer comes back, I was looking for community. 
I was looking for a community of believers, and I found it there. I don't know what your answer might be to that, but I never heard the word community used in that sense up until about 10 years ago. But now it's almost, uh, I hear it all the time. And that's what Paul is addressing here. What is community? It means more than just being acquainted with one another. That's not really community. It's, it's getting involved with one another's lives. And it doesn't come easy. It involves sacrifice. It involves time. It involves risk. It involves inconvenience because we'll inconvenience one another. And so he gives us here a few, a few, there are about 11 admonitions. Today we'll look at four of them. So let's look at these closing admonitions, you might say, to this, to this group. Now, let me just give you a little background because this is very important. If you've not been with us or if you're not familiar with this letter in the New Testament, in the year 50 AD, Paul, who was a missionary taking the gospel around the Mediterranean area, he and a man named Timothy and a man named Silas came into the city of Thessalonica. There's no indication they've been there before. And as was his custom, he went to the Jewish synagogue. That was their like community center, their teaching center. And on he, he did this, we read in Acts chapter 17, for three consecutive Sabbath days. That would have been Saturdays. He went there, and as was customary, if you were a teacher, a, a man in, the Jewish, in, in good standing with the Jewish community, you'd be allowed to teach. And he taught, and a number of people, Jews and Gentiles in the area, came to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. They came, they were adopted into the community, the community of faith. And wherever there's a positive response, there's a negative response. And the negative response rose up and it was fierce. And they had to leave the synagogue, Paul and Timothy and Silas and some others, and a man named Jason who had let them stay at his house. And these, these opposers take them before the magistrates, the civil magistrates, and saying these people are causing trouble. Well, it, the opposition is so strong, they have to leave under cover of darkness. Now, many months have passed. Paul has sent Timothy back to check on these young believers back in Thessalonica. Timothy comes and gives a report. And now Paul is in the city of Corinth, and he writes this letter back to this, this young church, maybe at the most a year old now, these believers that were gathered together. And as he comes to the end of this first letter to them, he gives these admonitions. The first one, he says, We urge you, brothers, verse 14, uh, uh, all these are in verse 14. Uh, these are, this is for everybody. This isn't just some of us are to do this, but first, admonish the idle. Admonish those who are idle. Apparently, there were those in that, that young church back in Thessalonica who had quit working. And we know from other places in the letter, apparently they quit because they thought Jesus was coming back at any time. So under a spiritual auspices, they said, well, we might as well wait. I, I don't need to, to go earn a livelihood or, or provide for my family. Jesus is going to come back at any time. Well, maybe that was a, a nice motivation, but their, their uh, action was wrong. And so Paul says here to admonish them not to forsake their responsibilities. We all have callings in life. You youngsters have calling. Older people have callings, all of us. This was a novel idea to me as a young Christian. 
I had a real conflict with uh, thinking that school was a waste of time. I'm sure I'm the first person in history that had that in high school and even into college. And I thought I could be studying the Bible. If only I was at a Bible college studying something that really has application to life rather than sociology and psychology and, and geometry and things like that. And one day I was at a YMCA playing basketball and there was a pastor there named Tom Ellis. He wasn't a whole lot older than the rest of us. He was a single guy. And I, uh, but I respected him greatly. And I said, Tom, this is a conflict I feel. I, I, I feel like I'm wasting my time in school when I could be doing this, serving God over here. And he, all he said was this, it, won't, it will not sound unique to you, but it was revolutionary in my life. He said, Chip, right now, God has called you to be a student. End of conversation. And that freed me up, and I thought, you're right. He hadn't called me to be a uh, Bible teacher or something. He's called me to be a student. And so it was freeing in the sense that I can, with a clear conscience, give myself to this and be faithful to the responsibilities I have there. I'd like to say it was easy from that point on, but, it, but of course it wasn't. But you have a calling. And we have all sorts of callings in life. Maybe to be a husband or, or a wife or a father or, or a grandfather or whatever it might be. Well, we have callings and we should not neglect those. We have, everyone here has responsibilities and duties. Some are volunteer, some are compensated for. But you won't find anything in the Bible that, that commends a a life that's filled with nothing but recreation and wasting time and idleness. It's just not there. So it, one of the first th things he says here is admonish, encourage those among you that may be idle. Second, encourage the faint-hearted. In contrast to the idle person, there are those who are easily discouraged. That's what the word means, faint-hearted. Uh, I just told you the background of the church in Thessalonica so that you would know that church was birthed. These people became Christians in the midst of controversy. And so from the day of their birth spiritually, there was opposition that they all would have felt. And some people I know that become Christians, they like to fight before they were Christians and they like to fight after they become Christians. And they run to the conflict. And they love to do apologetics, defending the Christian faith. And the more opposition, the better. And others of us are more timid, like, uh, uh, I think I'll wait back here. I'll wait in the car and pray while you go in there and talk to that person. Or, or we're timid. Uh, I'm not getting into all the family background or why someone might be that way and temperament and so forth, but, but some are. So in Thessalonica, there were probably those that, like Jason, yeah, we're going to stand strong and we don't care what they say. We don't care what the opposition says. We're going to keep evangelizing and we're going to do this and we're going to plant another church over there and we're going to teach publicly and we're going back to the synagogue. And others would have said, hey, somebody can get hurt doing this. I think, I think I'll, uh, I, I'd rather just kind of wait it out. What does he say here? He says, encourage them, encourage the faint-hearted. Uh, this may be re reminding one another of God's promises. Look, God, God will be with you. God will give you strength in that situation. I know you think you don't have it now, but do you realize God is using you there? Here's an example. 
Here's an example from the Bible of where someone encouraged the faint-hearted. Remember David. David uh, was a shepherd boy, and God chose him for no reason of David's, but God chose him to be the second king of Israel, the nation of Israel. The first king was named Saul, and he had disobeyed God, and God said he's going to be removed from the throne, and David's going to become king. So he sent a man named Samuel, who was a prophet and the last judge, who came and anointed David that he would be the future king. Well, then he fights Goliath, he beats Goliath, the people, he becomes very popular with the people, and Saul becomes very jealous. The limelight is now off of him as a king, and it's on this other uh, upstart. So Saul has this uh, bipolar type personality. I mean, one day he's friendly, the next day he wants to kill him and tries to kill David. And David is, uh, David's growing faint-hearted. And ironically, the person who comes to encourage him is the son of Saul, a man named Jonathan. And Jonathan comes to David and they, they become close friends and, and he encourages him encourages him to be faithful to what God's called him to be. You can read about it in the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 23. But in one of the verses, it says that Jonathan strengthened David's hand in God. Jonathan restored David's confidence in God's plan for him. Uh, in most cases, the greatest help that you as a Christian can offer to a faint-hearted fellow brother or sister is just to encourage them with the truths from the Bible. Just to remind them that, that God has promised to do this or God has, has given you this foundation. And so is God calling you today to be a Jonathan in the life of some David, some person you may know right now that, that could greatly benefit if you call them or message them or maybe today or tomorrow and say, hey, I just want you to know I, God put you on my heart and I think he's got special plans for you. He has not forsaken you. Third, he mentions the weak. Help the weak. He's talking there not so much physical weakness, but spiritual weakness. Those who are weak in their faith. Those who find it difficult to abandon their former life and the lure of the world and, and sinful habits. And we know that when the Apostle Paul writes these letters in the New Testament, he gives very straightforward um, instructions and commands like in Colossians 3 put to death sexual immorality impurity passion evil desire covetousness put away anger wrath and malice and slander put on hearts of compassion and kindness and humility humility and gentleness flee immorality do not love the world or the things of the world I mean those are very direct statements that as a a new person in Christ, I'm to follow Christ, I'm to obey him. Of course, we all stumble along the way, but this seems to be referencing someone that's really having a hard time in this whole area of obedience and, and letting go of, 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 of uh, sin patterns in their life. And so even though Paul is very direct in these instructions, he never urges Christians to abandon believers who are struggling. Never. Now, there are cases where someone is in public sin and they're unrepentant. And that's, to, that's a whole other matter. 
But for the person who just stumbles and falls and says, I want to grow in Christ, but oh, I just, man, I'm, 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 uh, I'm just connected with this relationship with others, this other person. And it's, I know it's destructive and I know it's not good for me. And I'm trying to get out of it, but I go back and what are we supposed to do? We're to help, help the weak. And so we, we must be patient. And that's why it comes to that with one another. We have to realize, in a family, they're babies. We heard, we heard the little one making sounds up here. We all expected that. And I looked out. Y'all were smiling. You expect a baby to be a baby. What if, what if we said, hey, uh, you, and, and no, uh, no baby sounds in church. We only allow adults in here. We don't want any of this whispering. We want to, and, and they got to walk in here. You know, none of this caring stuff. You know, a few months old, need to be walking. That's somehow how, that, to some extent, that's how we treat new Christians. Hey, you come in here, well, don't act like a baby. Uh, you need to act like an adult. I know you just came to faith one week ago, but you should have your life all cleaned up now. You know, and that's terribly destructive. Uh, so a healthy church has, I think it's got some unbelievers involved. It's got new Christians, it's got growing Christians, it's got more mature Christians, it's got, it's got the gamut. And we have to be patient with one another and, and allow for growth. Think, think about your own life. Who was patient with you? I would not have wanted to be around me as a young Christian. I can tell you that. I don't know how other people did. So he tells us there uh, to encourage them. Leon Morris, who is a Bible teacher, he, he wrote, It is good for weak souls to know that there are others who are with them, who will stick with them in the difficult moment, who will not forsake them. The weak are not simply to be abandoned, but made to feel that they belong, that they have strong comrades in Christ. And last of all, he says, be patient with them all. And so when you're tempted to give up on, on someone, uh, don't. Uh, what if so-and-so had given up on you? Now, I want to close with an example from history that to me is one of the most profound examples of, of a person fulfilling what is said in these instructions right here that we've looked at today. And it involves a man named William Cooper. We pronounce it Cooper, but it's spelled C-O-W-P-E-R, like Cowper. You'll see his name in our hymnals sometimes. We sing his hymns. He was a poet. He lived in the 1700s. He, was a, he lived in England. He was a contemporary of John Wesley and Charles Wesley and George Whitfield, Benjamin Franklin here in colonial America. He lived during the time of the revolution in America and in uh, France. So that kind of puts you, gives you his historical background. William Cooper was born to a uh, affluent family. His mother's maiden name was Don. She was a relative to John Don, the poet and playwright. Um, his dad had been a lawyer and now was a, a minister, but from a wealthy background. His mother died when he was six years old. And so he, he really never knew his mom. His father immediately put him in a boarding school, one of the biggest mistakes he could have made. He put him in a boarding school where things went on that scarred him for the rest of his life. He ultimately ended up in a better boarding school, Westminster School, 
in England, and he uh, was taught the classics, Greek, French, languages. Late in life, he continued to translate things from Greek and, and writing, so he, he was an academic like that, and he was a poet. At age 18, he finished school, and his father wanted him to become a lawyer. But because he had an introverted, prone to depression, what they call melancholy in those days, personality, the very notion of engaging with people in the legal field or standing up terrified him. In fact, uh, he was to have an oral exam to be accepted for a particular position. And in anticipation of that, he went into such a despair that he tried to commit suicide, and I'm not making this up, three times and failed each time. And it all happened within a short space of time. He bought a bottle of laudanum, which was opium, and then he decided, I'm going to jump off a bridge and drown myself. He got to the bridge and the water was low. He took that as a sign, he went back to his apartment, and he said, I had the bottle of laudanum, but my hands kind of became paralyzed. I could not open it. So he took a garter and he hung himself. He passed out and the garter broke and his body hit the floor unconscious and a housekeeper came in and found him and he ended up in an insane asylum. Isn't this an edifying life? This is one of the hardest lives you, you'll ever hear about, William Cooper, of his own choice. He ended up in an insane asylum, which would have been terrible in the late 1700s, but in this particular one, he was assigned a doctor, Dr. Dr. Nathaniel Cotton, who was not only helping the patients in the asylum, was a strong Christian. And he prayed with uh, William Cooper, and he was a poet, and they talked about poetry. And it was through this doctor that William Cooper came to faith in Christ while he was reading John chapter 11. In fact, he was doing so well, he stayed 12 months longer than he should have stayed in the insane asylum. So he gets out and he goes to live with a family. He's, when he came out, it was kind of a halfway house. He goes to move in with a family. Make a long story short, I'm going to make it real short. They move, they end up in a place called Olney, and the local pastor is John Newton. Amazing Grace, the converted wild man of Africa who is called the, the captain of the slave ship, who by all reckoning was probably one of the healthiest, happiest pastors in history. John Newton sees potential in William Cooper, and he sees his prone to depression and despair and melancholy, but that he seems to be truly converted and wants to grow. So Newton says, I want you to start going with me to visit people in my parish. Can you imagine this introvert? And yet Newton doesn't let him get off the hook. Takes him with him, and he says, Let's, I want to do a project together. You're a poet, I'm a poet, and a musician. I want us to compile a hymnal to use for this church. So in 1759, they begin work on what became known and is still around the Olney Hymn Book. In that hymn book, Wesley, I mean, uh, Newton, Newton wrote 200 plus hymns. Cooper wrote 60 something hymns. And today those hymns are still sung. 
Some of those by Newton included Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Name of Jesus Sounds in a Believer's Ear, Glorious Things of Thee Are Spoken, and William Cooper wrote such as God Moves in a Mysterious Way, and There is a Fountain Filled with Blood Drawn from Emmanuel's Veins. A year after that hymnal was published, Newton and his family are called to London where he is to take on a different pastorate. If I'd been John Newton, if you'd been John Newton, and now had the opportunity to move away from William Cooper, I think I would have said, thank you, Lord. This guy's out of my life. He was, he was like a black hole draining me. Is that what John Newton did? No. For 27 years, they continue a steady flow of letters and visitation of John Newton trying to help and keep William Cooper from going into these dark periods of despair. What patience, what an example to help someone within the Christian community. So I close with this. I was thinking this morning as I drove down here, Chip, what do you want to see accomplished in this sermon? Two things. First, for believers, for Christians, we need to have Christian community, and it takes effort. Uh, church is not just an event. If it is, that, that's not, that doesn't help anybody. But it's those relationships in Christ. For those that may be here that don't know Christ, I want to issue you an invitation. An invitation to be adopted. Here's your invitation to be adopted into the family of God. It doesn't come any simpler than what's said in Romans. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord... And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. Let's pray together. We are able to call you Father because of being adopted into your family. So we pray that you would help us, Lord, even in this particular church, for those that are here, part of First Presbyterian Church, that we would be a vibrant Christian community, bearing with one another and encouraging the faint-hearted and uh, admonishing the idle and and strengthening the weak. We can only do that by the grace of your Holy Spirit. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen.